Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Dialogue, a new path of modernization for all. This discussion is a part of the second international forum on dialogue between China and the world, chaired by Renmin University of China. This year, as we know, marks the 10th anniversary of President Xi Jinping's proposal to jointly build the Belt and Road Initiative. Over the past 10 years, the initiative has gradually become a popular international public project and a global cooperation platform. So, what has made the BRI so attractive and distinctive from other projects? What has the BRI brought to those participating countries, and what will it bring to the world? And how can we understand and respond to criticism which may have hindered the willingness of some countries to participate? To discuss these issues and more, I'm glad to be joined by. We have Bruno. Masias, former Minister of European Affairs of Portugal, and we have Zoom Ahmad Khan, researcher of the Institute of Belt and Road Strategy, Department of International Relations, Tsinghua University.、Uh, we have Augusto Soto, director of the Dialogue with China program at Isadi Business School, Spain, and we have、uh, Adrian Hearn, professor of the Center for Spanish and Latin American Studies, University of Melbourne. And Wang Yiwei, Vice President of the Academy of Xi Jinping Thought on Socialism with Chinese Characteristics for New Era, Jimmy University of China.、Uh, I would like to briefly have you、uh, share with us your takeaways of the speech given by President Xi Jinping, basically setting the stage for the next five to ten years about the development of a BRI.、Uh, so I will start with Zoom, please. Thank you, thank you so much, Indo.、Um, my key takeaway from、uh, President Xi's speech, you know, first of all, is that his messaging, the Belt and Road Initiative's vision, which I think has always been a response to the much-needed gaps that need to be filled in the world from day one. When、uh, in 2015 the、uh, initial first phase projects were announced, they were responding to the infrastructure gap, and then the gradual evolution. And today, you know, as we are at the 10th anniversary,、uh, how he emphasised on unity, how we, how he emphasised on countries promoting each other's development, recognising that we as a world will prosper and perish together, and really talking about the commonalities. So two things that I'll point out:、uh, he mentioned. That obviously we need to plan, a build, and a benefit together. Right?、Uh, the Belt and Road's、uh, vision is that all countries can benefit if we cooperate、uh, in with the with a mentality of、uh, mutual respect and mutual benefit. And this is why you know we see more than 152 152 countries as signatories or as you know participants in one way or another to the Belt and Road Initiative. Secondly,、uh, it's interesting because the first summit focused on、um, the. Hard infrastructure. The second in 2019 was about socio-economic development, and gradually we have seen the GDI, GCI, and GSI, which are manifestations. So one of the expectations was the multilateralization. You know,、uh, 
uh, towards more multilateral efforts in, within the Belt and Road Initiative um, uh, scope. And that is what was also mentioned in his speech. So this is very important, you know, if we want to think about a shared future as mankind globally, we need to start by acting within regions. And you see China and Central Asia, China, South Asia, China, Africa cooperation. This is a very important step towards better synergy for us globally. So I think, you know, it was the kind of message that resonates with the majority of the world. I think the flexibility uh, of the Belt and Road to be receptive is something that developing countries have always wanted. And I think, you know, it's also about showing respect to countries regardless of how developed they are, how significant they are today. It is recognizing um, our need to work together towards uh, goals that, uh, that affect a majority of the world's population. Uh, thank you, uh, Zuan. Uh, Augusto, you are from Spain, from European countries. Yes. You know, uh, Zuan talked about uh, the cooperation of the BRI. You know, mostly among the global South, developing countries. How do you see, you know, from a region with the developed economies? Well, first of all, thank you very much for this invitation. It is real. It's also quite encouraging to see that President Xi Jinping is has having a plan. It's clear the plan, long-term plan to double down on the initiative, you know, these fronts. Um, I have nothing to add to President Xi Jinping's initiative, of course. There are several measures, several long-term measures. Um, it is a, a, nice, a nice challenge, in a way, because it's a call for us also to have long-term perspective, which you have in China. We don't have that uh, in Europe, a long-term long perspective. And no country, actually, as far as I know, so uh, it is uh, the calling for new synergies and more than insisting on investment that will be undoubtedly part of our, our common task. Um, uh, we, and we need to promote more people-to-people -people exchange is also included in Xi Jinping's uh, uh, project, you know, uh, more scholarships, more interaction. This is crucial, uh, it's crucial. Um, we have to have a common narrative. We have different narratives right now in the world. Different countries have different views. We have conflicts, wars, and uh, I think this is a driving force for, for peace, development. Um, so I celebrate uh, these decisions, and uh, we need a long-term perspective in Europe. From the Spanish perspective, we are celebrating 50 years of uh, diplomatic ties this year and the 10th um, uh, anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, and also next year, the first arrival of the EU Madrid train crisscrossing Eurasia, which has played a very important role uh, because it opened a new uh, you know, a, a collaboration route. So many uh, projects in Latin America, also in, in Europe, for example, in Croatia, and I could uh, I include so many other projects, but I think we have little time. So I celebrate this, and this is a challenge for us also to have long-term. Uh, Yiwei, uh, I want to ask you this question. You know, I, I, President Xi Jinping, in his speech, he talked about uh, you know, the two development banks of China, each setting up like 350 billion yuan uh, for the financing window, and also plus an injection of 80 billion uh, yuan for the Silk uh, Road Fund. Are you surprised with the announcement of actually you know, a stronger commitment, a doubling down on the Belt and Road projects here? Well, yes, um, big surprise, some many people said uh, that uh, 
Now, everybody, because of the domestic debts, including China, many uh, cut the budget, but China actually uh, imported the BRI from uh, financial investment and also uh, institutionalized uh, of the mechanisms. So now we have the Secretary General of the BRI Forum. And secondly, I think this is also support uh, modernization for all. We said on the basis of the Chinese modernization, now it's for all other countries also can achieve modernization. And the third keyword I would like to use is globalization. So globalization is the trend, this reality, which is, cannot be changed. So some people say deglobalization or the globalization is the end. So China support globalization, but reform the globalization through BRI. So that's like in the financial investment. But also this investment is different with the previous one, because this time is to uh, as high quality development. It's more from bilateral and to multilateral, as you mentioned, and even globalized of this. So this is institutionalized. I think it's a structure of these financial investments different. So that's, I think, the, the crucial. Continuation, but also something different here. Uh, and uh, Professor Hearn, uh, you know, your expertise is on Latin America, you know, Spanish, uh, the world. Uh, what, what's your observation of the summit so far? Well, thanks, Mr. Xu. I, you know, I've had the good fortune of uh, seeing some of these challenges from multiple perspectives because I'm half British and half Brazilian and I live in Australia. Those are countries with very different priorities and different aspirations. So what I perceive is an evolution in the BRI. I see that 10 years ago, BRI was focused on the big picture infrastructure Five years ago, the goal that was emphasized was on small but beautiful projects. And then now we hear President Xi a focus on high quality, ecological, and people-to-people -people projects. So a, a stronger focus on cultural exchange. So this is an evolution that I think is really positive because one of the things it should achieve is to inform people and make people around the world, everyday people, normal people, more aware about the BRI. Because otherwise, if the focus is on high-level infrastructure, everyday people may have little idea what the BRI is or never even heard of it. So I think this next phase is a necessary one. It's a good one, and I can think of several examples that are already underway such as uh, a project I've become familiar with, Junzhao, which is a mushroom. Mushrooms, yes. Uh, mushrooms, a traditional Chinese approach to cultivating mushrooms that's been uh, now adopted in 106 countries around the world. And what's interesting is that this traditional Chinese approach has been married up with contemporary scientific research on mushrooms and their nutritional and their ecological benefits. So this coming together of tradition with science, I think is a really positive step and it's the kind of thing that I think now with this third phase of BRI, hopefully we'll see more of. Hopefully we will see more of that. Uh, uh, Bruno, I know you are a keen observer of um, the you know, big powers, geopolitical rivalry, things like that. Also, you have your own understanding of modernization. You know, all we talk about 
talked about, uh, infrastructure construction, even the mushrooms there, uh, you know, green economy, digitalization, is all part of the process of modernization. What do you see as uh, probably distinctive about the Chinese pursuit of modernization here? I think China's approach to modernization has uh, shaped uh, the BRI. Uh, it's a country that is still developing, a country where every time I come here, I lived in Beijing for one year just before the pandemic, you see an enormous drive towards uh, technological growth, technological development. And the result was that the BRI turned out to be much more focused on developing capacities than uh, traditional models of globalization. It's not enough to open borders or to remove obstacles. Uh, that negative approach is not sufficient. You need also to build capacities. People can only join globalization if they have the ability, the capacity, the powers to do that. So the BRI is different in that sense. Another way I think it is different, it, it, it does from the very beginning, from 10 years ago, it does uh, appeal to a long historical trajectory. We sometimes think about uh, uh, relations between nations in terms of what happened last year or the last five years. And we don't know, we don't like what this country did last year, so suddenly we are adversaries. And I think uh, my own country uh, thinks about these things very differently. You know that we have a 500-year relationship with China. And so when people in Europe uh, sometimes or in the United States say China is an enemy or is an adversary, for us, the question is posed over a period of 500 years where we had excellent relations with China. Uh, and I think the BRI also tries to capture that, that it is perhaps very human to think about what happened yesterday. But we have to elevate our perspective to thinking about centuries. This is the political responsibility to think about the long term, not to think about what happened yesterday and be captured by the news of the day. Yui, I want to start with you here. You know, infrastructure construction is or was or still is the focus uh, of uh, BRI. Tell us you know, the, from the Chinese own experience, why infrastructure is a priority? Is that important to modernization? Uh, indeed, uh, I attended uh, the ceremony, open ceremony in the People's Hall. Uh, all the leaders, including the UN Secretary General, mentioned about infrastructure building. Uh, I think that's the attraction to the Chinese modernization, opening reforms there. If we want to get rich, build the road first. Yeah. If we want to get rich quickly, build the motor road. <laughs> if we want to get rich immediately, build the internet road. <laughs> but most importantly, if we want to get rich jointly, connects the roads. So mutual connectivity, I think that's the key. So first, the build the roads, infrastructure building. Under so-called the Washington Consensus, new liberalism, globalization, private capital, no so many interests invest in the infrastructure building. For instance, that's the reason the US even suffered the poor infrastructure domestically. So how can you help you to build the infrastructure, private capital driven? No, but uh, actually, um, there are many other countries that just sell the raw materials to the Western countries. So they are not industrialized. So when the Chinese come to invest in the beauty of the electricity, water, all this infrastructure, and then industrialization uh, happened. For instance, I just come back from uh, Indonesia. We built the high-speed railway for 350 kilometers per hour. That's the two superpowers in the world, China and, the Indo and Indonesia has sucked the you know, highest uh, spirit of the railway. 
But it's not about this railway. They connect to major cities, and then the real estate, tourists, all the industries, we said a cluster of the industries, were boomed. So that's kind of China modernization, I think, because um, China has uh, most uh, complete and, uh, I think, categories of all the industries in the world. So everything built with China and made in China is most efficient and low cost. Indeed, uh, and if you look at uh, infra infrastructure investment, I mean, private investors, you know, have little interest because uh, the returns will take a long time. Uh, speak of the infrastructure building, I mean, CPAC, you know, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, uh, is critically important to both countries. I would say in particular to Pakistan, that's an opportunity to develop. How much have we achieved? I know, you, you know, Pakistan used to be like the shortage of, uh, of power. Uh, sometimes that's, that's a pain for a lot of people and also for industries. Um, so you mentioned the shortage of power. We actually refer to that period which started in 2007 as one of the worst economic crises the country had experienced. So for example, in major cities like Lahore, Karachi, Islamabad, we had load shedding of 12 to 14 hours a day. The country was de-industrializing. While I was in my university years, people were relocating to other countries because it was simply not feasible. Now, the thing is that Pakistan had a plan that we need to obviously upgrade our energy infrastructure, our transportation infrastructure. We know that was also security-wise a difficult uh, period. So we needed to um, really improve both. And we wanted to develop the port of Gwadar. In 2014, at the UN General Assembly, the Pakistani Prime Minister at that time said, you know, that we need trade, not aid, specifically to Western powers. Months after that, the first phase was announced. And this phase included, at that time, $46 billion of investment in the specific areas that Pakistan needed. It was basically a a mixture, you know, a combination of Pakistan's own at that time domestic vision and what China could offer. And since then, you know, now eight years on, we have seen that Pakistan doesn't have the same kind of energy shortages. We have better transportation infrastructure. You just mentioned the railway in Indonesia. In Pakistan, we did not have public transport in mega cities like Lahore and, and Karachi, and now we do because of CPEC. More than that, you know, the evolution of CPEC, we started talking about socio-economic development. More than 100,000 Pakistanis have benefited from Chinese scholarships, which is improving their skills, and that is obviously an extension. The imports and pipelines are not just for the sake of it, we have to utilize it. So China has also worked a lot on skills development. We are improving our agriculture. More than 200,000 jobs are directly linked with CPEC, and many more indirectly. We have stories of women empowerment. We have um, a, a lot of, you know, even schools, hospitals. The, the point, I think, in the end, in a nutshell, if I have to add, that in eight years, Pakistan's, any conversation about development in Pakistan, CPEC has been at the center of that. We are learning how to develop in a better way. We are now considering uh, greener technology, greener infrastructure, because China's investment ha uh, over the years has made it feasible for developing countries to consider greener alternatives, including for Pakistan. And lastly, I think I'll just add that, you know, um, CPEC, ideally, you know, the vision is to serve as a connectivity point for Central Asia, for Iran, for Pakistan, for the region. 
And of course, we are not there yet. But in the end, you know, such infrastructure development, uh, improvement in skills, etc., can benefit an entire region. So hopefully, you know, in a few years, we'll see, uh, we'll see the impact beyond Pakistan. And Bruno, you know, with the BRI, you know, 10 years and probably next 10 years with the development, with the speed of growth uh, expansion, how would that affect this you know, geopolitical landscape? As you once said, you know, like um, Biden once told Xi Jinping, um, possibility, a possibility, right, is the word to define the U.S. What is the word to define China? Yes, this is what I ask everyone when I come to China, and uh, <laughs> you, you have to tell me. Um, you know, there is a, there is a sense that uh, possibility defines uh, the U.S., uh, but it's individual possibility. Uh, but, of course, uh, the sense that societies are moving forward and that societies also have an open future, this is an idea that is very much in crisis today in Western societies we tend to think that we no longer have the ability to change reality. When I, when I hear uh, people in China talk about the future, it's much more about the ability to actually change societies. The idea that the future is open seems to me a very appealing idea. Now, in my book in 2019, uh, I discussed the Belt and Road more or less in these terms. And I thought back then that the Belt and Road cannot be limited to infrastructure, and that perhaps the future of the Belt and Road is, is quite open. And you are right. I think, uh, I think I turned out to be right, because uh, coming here now uh, four years later, uh, the Belt and Road that I hear about is a Belt and Road that perhaps uh, could not have been predicted in 2019. Uh, there's emphasis on things that uh, were not talked about back then. Uh, there is a sense of historical change and historical novelty that I think is important. Now, as you say correctly, uh, the Belt and Road has also been captured by geopolitical competition. Uh, this is another change that's happened since uh, you know, 2017. Even the United States sent a representative to the first Belt and Road Forum, which now seems unthinkable. So it is a challenge for the next five or They're the next... They're still welcome today. Uh, <laughs> but they didn't. Uh, it's a challenge for the next five or ten years uh, how to, um, how to uh, respond to, to this fact and how to uh, remove the Belt and Road from the chessboard of geopolitical competition. Uh, I think uh, that's what I'm curious about for the next five or the next ten years, how this can be done. Um, and it won't, it won't be easy. It won't be easy because the world is captured by geopolitical competition and we now have a Chinese model of modernization uh, and a Western model of modernization and what I see is that they are in a way competing against each other. China is uh, learning by doing, doing by learning or learning by doing. <laughs> we are not a religion society thinking that says we have a model, we sell this model to you. No, you be yourself, not to be answered. You cannot channelize. So that's the reason the Chinese modernization or China passed to modernization, to be yourself. Everything should localize, globalization localized, not westernized, not, of course not channelized. So it's not a challenge, so-called Western model in the globalization or universalism, but on the contrary, it's building the condition, let the market works, let the high standard of the Western modernizations adapt to the local condition of the poor countries or developing countries. So China is a bridge, connect West, globe South. One thought I was left with is, 
China does have a great advantage that it is, uh, it's the second great project of modernization after the Western project. And in that sense, it can look back and learn from the mistakes that the West has made. And in fact, I think the dialectic that we're seeing in China today is very much about doing that. For example, when it comes to the environment, it's learning about the mistakes of the first wave of modernization. Uh, when talking about uh, geopolitical competition and trying to overcome that, it's learning from the way that the first wave of modernization worked out. So in life, we don't have a second chance in our individual lives. We only have one life. But when it comes to modernization, it's possible to try again and try better than the first time. But China is also leading in some areas. Uh, there's a learning curve, a curve and then uh, China is leapfrogging and is leading in some, uh, some factors, some areas, focus on green development, uh, or oh, the e-commerce, you know, e-commerce China is also leading. Uh, and, uh, you know, digital economy, China is also leading, I would say. I think there are so many ideas that were just discussed. I'll try to um, maybe comment based on what you just said. First of all, you know, any developing country, be it Pakistan, be it, you know, somewhere in the African continent, Latin America, no developing country is sitting there thinking, you know what? we want to choose who will dominate us. They're just thinking who is interested and has the capability to meet us halfway at least, right? They're not sitting here thinking, okay, now we want to be again, you know, we want to be able to choose between one power or the other. And the truth is, you know, in recent years, and, and Bruno mentioned this, um, in China, what you see is dynamism. Over the last 45 years, especially when countries, when people from, whether they're from the global north, global south, eastern, western, it doesn't matter. They come to China, they study China, they observe what's happening in China consistently, especially since the reform and opening up, they see dynamism, potential, and because of that, some optimism. And that is attractive to developing countries. The Belt and Road Initiative is not expanding because China is going knocking doors of developing countries. Actually, developing countries need a lot of resources. They want to modernize. They want to be able to, um, you know, uh, have solutions that can work for their development. They have protested against development models that were imposed on them for decades. So even one of the other speakers earlier in today's session mentioned that, you know, the idea that countries should be able to pursue their own path of development. They should be able to, you know, find solutions that are suitable for them. This concept has existed actually for many years. The Bandung spirit is something that the BRI today connects very well with. It was the idea that we should be able to pursue independent paths. So that said, I think um, given how fast China is advancing, given that China has a long-term perspective, given that China is part of the Global South, China can relate. China can understand the challenges. China is very developed and also just coming out of poverty, has come out of poverty recently. China has the experience and expertise to be able to help countries, whether they are in the global north or the global south, understand the unique solutions to them. So I think it is, that, it is the flexibility of the BRI that is making it more successful, attractive. And I also think, you know, calling um, the BRI um, maybe controversial in any way or as a source of geopolitical tensions. I mean, that is a very minority view. Well, with that, we are coming to the end for today's discussion. Many thanks again to our guests, 
You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. I'm Xu Qinduo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.